Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Thank you to everybody who has sent in their messages and told me their stories and asked their questions. I appreciate it very much. If I haven't got back to you immediately, or if it takes some time to reply, please know that it's basically just because of my own bad record keeping. (laughs) It's not because of you. I have messages coming in from three or four different email accounts, uh, Facebook, Facebook Messenger, Instagram, text, phone message, and the like. So if uh, some of those messages, I don't always organize them very well. So it's my own cack-handedness that's the result of a bad response time. It's nothing to do with with you or your message. Please know that. There have been one set of questions coming through which all vaguely fall under the similar heading, so I want to deal with that in this session. And essentially they are questions to do with participation in movements or large movements. Here specifically talking about Black Lives Matter or some of the protests that are happening in, well, in the countries that I'm most familiar with. So in, in Canada, in the United Kingdom and in the United States, but I know also in other countries across the world, there are lots of protests and movements and organized groups who are speaking up. And now I have lots of emails from well-intentioned, well-meaning Christians who are wondering about their participation in some of these groups to the extent that they should be doing it or concerns about allying oneself to organized groups which have aims and agendas that a follower of Christ might have difficulty with. A very classic example here is Black Lives Matter, because, of course, Black Lives Matter. There's no ifs or buts about that. And some of the organized groups marching under that banner or using that name also have as their explicit aim Marxist tendencies or anarchist tendencies. And so there's a question here coming up from people of like, well, We do support Black Lives Matter, but we don't support Marxism, or we don't support violent overthrow of the powers that be. So how much can we ally with these groups, or how much should we be identifying with these names, which mean more than one thing at the same time? And obviously these are good questions, and they're obviously very relevant to today. And on a related note, I'm also getting emails from people who are being told by their evangelical friends that Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. Therefore, we shouldn't be too involved in the movements of this world and we shouldn't let their agenda dominate us. And also things like, well, following Jesus is a matter of the heart or of the individual or the private life. And one's public role is different than one's private role. And these are the sorts of questions that are coming. One listener, she sent me a little transcription of the conversation she'd been having online with one of her white American evangelical friends. And in lots of ways, it was a typical conversation that we all probably are going to be having or have already around dinner tables or on social media. And it's interesting because this American evangelical friend, she was not spewing hate and bile. She clearly is or wants to be anti-racist. She clearly wants to follow Jesus. So this isn't somebody who's representing the Ku Klux Klan here, okay? 
And it, in some ways, it makes these conversations harder because it's so hard to tell the difference between what sounds good and what actually is good. Now, this conversation that I'm talking about was centered around a YouTube video, or perhaps it was a Facebook video, that was uploaded by a man named Jerry Roberts. And Jerry Roberts is a black man. He's a farmer in Texas or a rancher. And he does these videos. And the one I looked at was he was talking about the Bible and he's very lovely, engaging man, very kind-hearted, you can just tell. And he's fixing a fence, the one I'm talking about. I wish I had an actual link to send you, but I can't do that. But he's fixing a fence, a barbed wire fence, and then sort of pauses in order to talk. And he talks for about six minutes. This is a, a video that's been doing the rounds and people have been liking it and loving it. And the, the gist of it is that he's overfilling with the Bible. He clearly knows the Bible and loves the Bible. He clearly loves Jesus. And he's talking about how you shouldn't let other narratives dominate your identity. And he he says, you know, he, he doesn't want the Black Lives Matter movement to overtake people's identity and that your citizenship is in heaven and that, you know, that kind of thing. And that we, and we shouldn't uh, allow anger and despair to dominate us or allow any one particular group that identifies primarily with a racial identity to be the basis for our, our own identity. And as I say, this has been a very popular video. And if you read the comments underneath, it's filled with people, um, many of whom you can tell from their profiles are white people who love this stuff. They're absolutely loving it. All right. It's really speaking to something that they want to hear. Now, my issue is not with Jerry Roberts. In fact, I think I could sit down with Jerry Roberts. I was watching his video. I was like, I could sit down with Jerry Roberts and I could talk about benign indifference till the day is done. And I think he and I would agree. A lot of what he's talking about is essentially just the same kinds of things I've been trying to say, which is that the identity of the follower of Christ does treat one's home nationality and home race and home allegiances with a type of benign indifference that Jerry Roberts is showing in his video. My concern is not what Jerry Roberts is saying, by and large. There's a couple of minor problems that I'm going to talk about here. But by and large, my concern is not what the black man is saying. It's what his white listeners are hearing. And it's connected to the earlier thing I mentioned, which was the complaints that you get from conservative white evangelicals, particularly about Black Lives Matter, how it's a socialist agenda, or there's some sort of radical anarchy, or they're trying to bring down the patriarchy, or they're trying to bring down the nuclear family or paternalism. And these are all stated aims of various Black Lives Matter movements. And so because of this ideological impurity, white Christians are finding themselves freely able to discount Black Lives Matter in the same way that white Christians are so happy to hear a black man offer a biblical critique of Black Lives Matter. This is what's the important thing here. Itching ears are hearing what they want to hear. Let's talk very specifically about this idea of ideological compromise or impurity, which you find all the time. I've seen it. There was a long uh, post that was sent to me, a Facebook post sent to me by a prominent, again, a prominent Bethelite talking about how Howard Zinn, who's a radical historian who writes a book called The People's History of America, how Howard Zinn is behind the Black Lives Matter movement and how this is a radical socialist agenda and all this kind of stuff. And the gist of the post was that Black Lives Matter is fundamentally anti-American. 
therefore it should be discounted, because it's seen to stand against some of the principles and structures that have made America great, then we should discount it. And it would just note once again that it's not the Bible or appeals to Jesus or the way of Jesus that is marking whether these movements should rise or fall. It's purely based on whether it offends American patriotism of the white evangelical. So once again, you see that the logic of patriotism trumps everything else, and that is the measure of goodness for so many self-confessed Christians and charismatics and evangelicals in this world. But more specifically, let's look at this idea of ideological compromise. The idea that you are given license to avoid a movement or warn people against joining a movement because you have identified in its foundations or amongst some of its spokespeople ideological positions that you don't like or that you think are suspect to Christianity. Okay. First of all, note that it's the same people who are so worried about ideological compromise with atheists, and they're using that as their excuse not to have anything to do with Black Lives Matter. These are the same people who are openly supportive of the libertarian movement or the wing in the Republican Party, the Tea Party movement, the economic ideology of Milton Friedman and the free market, low regulation economics that conservatives especially love. Well, this all has in its roots Ayn Rand. After the Bible, it's Ayn Rand's books that are the most popular books in the American bookshops. And Ayn Rand was an open, enthusiastic and ardent atheist who mocked Jesus. You can find videos of her on American talk shows mocking Jesus and followers of Jesus, who said, if anyone tells you that the love of money is the root of all evil, you should run a million miles in the opposite direction. The evangelical and charismatic world in America is absolutely filled with Ayn Randians who read The Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged or other books of her philosophies. And they seem to have no problem at all taking what they like about her baptized selfishness and greed is good philosophy and turning it into some sort of Christian individualism. No problem at all. And likewise, these same people who are using their public platforms to encourage their followers not to support Black Lives Matter, because they don't like that there are some Black Lives Matter protesters who are atheists or Marxists or whatever, well, these are the same people that will dismiss you out of hand when you point out to them that Trump supporters include self-confessed members of the Ku Klux Klan, self-confessed Nazi supporters, that there are swastikas flying at Trump rallies, and that the whole apparatus of the Make America Great Again campaign and the Trump movement has on its payroll white supremacists and nationalists and has had those ideological friends from the start. And if you don't know who Steve Bannon is, or Stephen Miller, or if you haven't been paying attention to the well-known and well-documented ties that the Trump movement has with white supremacy and white nationalism, as well as nationalist movements and racist movements across the world and the allies he's forming in Europe, well then you aren't paying attention. But more than that, you don't care. And it's the not caring that is important here. 
It's the ability that I've seen and I'm seeing all the time for itching ears to hear only what they want to hear. And all humans do it all the time. But right now, I'm looking at the log in our own eye, white Christians. Notice how inevitably, if ever there's a black voice that speaks up against Black Lives Matter, that will be the one that the evangelical white Christians like the most. Somebody like a Candace Owens, for example, or perhaps this farmer fence post preacher that I talked about. These will be the ones that get spread like wildfire on social media. And it's exactly analogous to the way that these self-same nationalist evangelical groups will elevate and amplify the voice of the 1% of social or environmental scientists who are questioning climate change at the expense of the 99%, the overwhelming majority of scientists and social experts who are telling us that there's a problem. And the reason why these groups, the reason why we white Christians do not like to hear any voice that is challenging us is because we have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo and comfortable nature of our inherited set of traditions, prejudices, and privileges. In short, we're part of a principality. Remember, principalities and powers mean faceless forces which influence our lives. All humans everywhere create principalities. Whenever people get together and agree about anything, consciously or unconsciously, they've created a faceless force which is now going to influence their lives. And the story of how those faceless forces go corrupt is always the story of when they act like they are the ones in which you live and move and have your being. When they start to act like they didn't have a beginning and they don't have a purpose. When they act like little gods. The principality becomes malignant or becomes demonic. When it bursts its bounds. When it allows no one to put it back in its place. And you can always tell when a principality has become an idol. Is when it resists being put back in its place. So it's so easy for me to see white evangelicals resisting any voice that is going to make them feel uncomfortable or that's going to lead to them having to actually dismantle some forms of life or think again about some of the things they've inherited and the structures that they live in and move and have their being. And this is what you see all the time. And sometimes the resistance happens through outright violence. And let's pay attention to how much outright violence does happen on a daily basis to preserve the status quo that white evangelicals have grown accustomed to. But let's also pay attention to how the principalities resist being challenged through things like the itching ears hearing only what they want to hear, through amplifying only those voices which already defend what we think we already know about ourselves and what we want to believe about ourselves. Principalities tend to own the space or dominate the space that they're in They set the parameters so that they define reality. So anything that comes from the outside is seen to be unreal or abnormal. So part of the idolatry of a principality is when it defines normality. When it says, this is the way things are and the way they're supposed to be. So anything that challenges this is a challenge to reality. The truth is, 
No one human narrative or agreed collective forms of life does set the parameters for reality. There's more than one way of thinking about the world. There's more than one way of organizing your power or sharing your imagination or collective agreements with each other. And so reality is much bigger than any one inherited form of life. Remember, when we use the word political, we don't just mean partisan politics or party politics. In fact, that sort of noisy tribalism of voting for your favorite team every four or five years, that's just a very tiny part of what it is to be political. A tiny part which has unfortunately dominated our imaginations. But when we speak about politics or being political, we also mean any time that humans share their power according to an agreed-upon collective imagination. So it's the gathering and the use of power for a particular vision or purpose. And this happens in families, this happens in churches, this happens in universities or schools or businesses. Any place where you find humans getting together to agree about something, they are also agreeing how they're going to use their individual power for a common purpose. And the the issue with all this is that we're negotiating space with other people who also have a different vision of power and what they think they're going to do with their collective power and whether they think they should give it away or who they should give it away to or how they're going to get more of it. So reality isn't defined by one collective vision of power. It's defined by multiple stories, multiple groups, multiple principalities negotiating space with each other. That's the reality that we live in. So when you find one principality or one form of life, which is dominating the space, what either explicitly or implicitly, that's where you find idolatry, or that's where you find a principality bursting its bounds, taking more than it's owed. And amongst some Christian nationalist groups, like the Dominionists and the Seven Mountains type ideology. Sometimes the taking over this public space is explicit. It's very much a part of their vision. But other times this is unconscious. It's just assumed, blindly assumed, that of course white American evangelicalism, for example, defines the space. It's neutral. It's normal. And every other voice is somehow unnatural. It's a challenge. And so the job then becomes uh, seen as the uh, member of the, of the in-group, to preserve the status quo against all outsiders and to filter and discern the voices very carefully to make sure that nothing upsets the normal way of life too much. Of course, the discernment doesn't ever seem to apply to the inner group. Nobody seems to worry that much about the bad voices or the corrupt voices that have gone into forming the status quo. It's always looking at the corrupt or bad voices coming from outside. And this isn't to say that other groups, of course, Black Lives Matter is, is a principality. And of course, it also, as a movement, as a series of humans who have shared their power for a collective vision, of course, Black Lives Matter or any human group and movement is going to need to have eyes on it and in an internal reckoning process and an ability to make sure that a principality doesn't burst its bounds and take more than it should, or define reality more than it should. Of course. But what we're concerned with here is the followers of Jesus. How do we approach this kind of stuff? 
You know, one of the things to do is to be very aware that we are all part of a principality. It is non-optional. And in fact, we're part of more than one, <laughs> multiple principalities. Often they're in conflict with each other. Often they, we're part of different principalities which have different visions for how power should be used. But in any case, this is the world that we live in. So the Christian or the follower of Jesus, our imagination is aimed at finding ways to identify when the principalities that we are a part of are claiming too much or bursting their bounds, when they've grown inhuman, and then to be able to witness to these powers, to put them back in their place, to put them in their right order, to remind them what their purpose is. And part of this process means not clutching tightly to the principalities that we are born into. Not clutching tightly to the rights and expectations of our home group, of the group that's telling us what's important or what we deserve or what we need to protect and defend. To hold these things with an open hand is to be Christ-like. The Charismatics quite rightly use a phrase called the orphan spirit to describe people who are clutching tightly, hunkered down, fearful and worried about their meager resources, not wanting to give anything away because they are fearful that there'll be no replacement. And to these kinds of people is what Jesus was saying to his disciples when he said, do not fear, I am not leaving you like orphans. But I, it's good that I'm going away because then I'm going to give my Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit keeps on giving. You can give away because there's always more. You can do the things that the follower of Jesus is being asked to do because it's not your own power. It's not your own meager resources. The kingdom of God has a lot more resources going for it than the kingdoms of man. All principalities which have grown malignant and all patriotic narratives rely on this idea that there are limited resources, not enough to go around, so we need to band together with people who look like us and sound like us as much as possible. This is the kind of orphan spirit which underlies all the kind of woke fundamentalism where you see the left-wing side of the culture tearing itself apart over not saying exactly the right words at the right times. But it's also the same logic you see tearing apart Facebook, tearing apart your churches, tearing apart conservatives as well. Everybody's competing, essentially, over what they think are limited resources, including power. We can't possibly let other people say anything or have a different opinion because it's a fundamental challenge to our own uh, ability to define reality. And I see this as an orphan spirit which infuses all principalities across the whole political spectrum. But I'm not concerned about lobbing stones at other people right now. I'm concerned about the fact that white evangelical Christians, my tribe, are so resistant to having their power challenged or their narrative challenged or their comfortable way of life challenged because they are clutching tightly to their resources and their power in order to preserve the principality they were born into which has now dominated and controlled their lives to such an extent that it is clearly a more important God than Jesus. 
I mentioned at the beginning of this episode the idea that Jesus's kingdom is not of this world or that following Jesus is a private act and not a public act and therefore Christians should stay away from quote unquote politics or big mass movements and mass protests. This is an idea very deeply ingrained in the principality that is Protestant evangelicalism. And we don't have time to go into the deep history of it all, but it's individualism. It's the idea that everything begins and ends with the individual, and that the message of Jesus and the message of the gospel is primarily about your individual salvation. This is also merged very easily with the American dream, the idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, the idea that you get out what you put in, uh, the heart, the Protestant work ethic, the idea that poverty is a moral failing and it's only because you didn't try hard enough or work hard enough. These are very deeply ingrained ideas which evangelicals across the world have absorbed. And as I say, there's a whole history for it. There's a whole intellectual archaeology that can be done and reams of paper have been written on this. <laughs> I, I'm not inventing this idea at all. One thing that we need to look at here, though, is how the idea of individualism has colonized the Christian imagination and how this idea that the individual, the private life, is the most important part of your life, is the only real part of your life, how that idea is being used to filter out how people read the scriptures, for example, or how they see the life of Jesus. Individualism is not something that is derived from the New Testament. It's something that is read into the New Testament. It's an interpretive lens which is being used. And it has in its roots, not at all incidentally, a nationalism and a patriotism involved with the Protestant Reformation and the rise of the idea of sovereignty. How individual states within the European empires were carving out for themselves a national sovereignty. The very first ever Protestants weren't called Protestants because they were protesting against the Roman Catholic theology. It was applied to the German princes who were protesting against overarching authority of the emperor. And they had latched on to Martin Luther's theological ideas and saw in them a very useful vehicle for carving out sovereignty. And there's a lots of uh, leading to this. You get the French Revolution, you get the American Revolution and the Wars of Independence. What's happening here is convulsions in the world which are trying to break out of domination systems and in the name of individual and small unit freedoms. And of course, as a corrective to a monstrous or demonic principality, individual freedoms are an excellent thing. But now let's notice how individual freedoms and the mantra of individualism has itself become the dominant principality and is itself now defining reality in which people swim and move and have their being. And they have forgotten or not noticed that individuality itself has a place and a purpose. And it's grown too big. And one of the places I see it growing too big or taking more than it's owed is in the reading of the Gospels and the logic of the follower of the way of Jesus. And you can see this happening all the time in any time you see somebody who says, ah, yes, but Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, so therefore we should have nothing to do with shared collective vision for society. We should have nothing to do with power and politics. For one thing, Jesus said that when he was standing in front of Pilate. 
in the Gospel of John. And the Gospels, all of them, want you to know, they spend a lot of energy telling you that the groups that killed Jesus were shared collective visions of power. It was a popular group, the popular mob, bade for Jesus's blood. The Jewish priests and Pharisee group, which represent the religious ethnic purity, they bade for Jesus's blood. And it was the Romans, the ones who represent overweening power and organized violence and domination. They're the ones who actually killed Jesus. These are the three main groups that are represented as the ones that put Jesus on the cross. It wasn't your individual sin that put Jesus there. It was our sin that put him there. The collective, organized, agreed upon sin is what put Jesus on the cross. And the Gospels don't hide that. And then, as I pointed out in a previous session, in Colossians 2, it's these collective, agreed-upon, habitual, and common-sense sins that Jesus exposes to open shame on the cross. But returning to Pilate and the Gospel of John, Jesus is standing before Pilate, and he says to him, Don't you know, my kingdom is not of this world. And he doesn't mean my kingdom has come from some alien place and has nothing to do with the people of this world, what he means is, my kingdom is not of this world, of soldiers and law courts and baying mobs outside and climbing the slippery pole to success and making sure that you keep your superiors happy and your inferiors fearful. My kingdom is not of this world. It's of a different world. But the different world that Jesus talks about his kingdom being is not an alien world. It's a recreation of reality in the here and now. The kingdom of God is now, he says. The kingdom of heaven is now. When the New Testament talks about the language of heaven, it's not talking about a place you go to when you die. This is part of the individualistic and sentimental principality that evangelicals and Protestants, well, Christians in the modern era, have absorbed. But in the New Testament imagination, the word heaven refers not to some place you go to, so much as it refers to the state of existence in which God's reign is unopposed. And the earliest Christian hope was not that they escape the earth and go to heaven. It's that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Or it's that like the book of Revelation has, where heaven and earth are remade and there's a new city which is glowing with the light of heaven and the humans no longer have to ask each other what is right and wrong because they're all guided by the light of God. God's reign is unopposed. Another way of saying God's reign is unopposed is to say where people say yes to God. And Jesus more than once says he's speaking with the Father's voice, And when we hear him speak, he's speaking as the father. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven is now. You can say yes to God now. And this is what's happening in the New Testament. It's a function of ruling and reigning, not a function of dying and your spirit going somewhere. Salvation was a salvation from the rule of men now. And the institution of the rule of God now which is why the word gospel, euangelion, meant the rightful king has broken the siege. This was the sort of message that the earliest Christians had. And I've said it many times. You go read the book of Acts. 
The earliest followers of Jesus didn't think they were starting a religion. They thought they were starting a new kingdom. And the kingdoms had forms of life and rules and habits and identity structures that other kingdoms have. It's just that the Christians did it differently. They didn't see the membership of their kingdom defined by ethnic or linguistic markers. They didn't see it defined as habitual forms of life you were born into and needed to fiercely protect from other groups. For the earliest Christians, there was no such thing as a private or anonymous Christian. You didn't follow Jesus secretly in your inner heart. You were seen to be with him or seen to be with his movement. That's what faith meant. That's what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. It was seen to be with. And again, you'll see this constantly in the book of Acts or in Paul's letters, where there is no institution of a private morality which at the moment that it impinges upon a public responsibility, you're supposed to show your allegiance to the public world, which is exactly the response seen today by Christians who are previously or have a prior commitment to patriotism. And then they say, you cannot follow the Sermon on the Mount and run a country. Therefore, we won't follow the Sermon on the Mount. Or we will make the Sermon on the Mount be something about the private response, but at in the public realm, you have to adopt a different code of morality. But this is an absolute nonsense. For one thing, Jesus wasn't speaking about private acts. He's speaking about public law courts. He's talking about being publicly shamed when you're hit on one cheek. He's talking about when a Roman occupying soldier forces you to carry his pack, you should willingly go an extra mile. These are all teachings aimed at people who are living in a threat of immediate violence. And he's telling them or asking them to act in ways that all the world around them would see and know to be public acts of a different sort of kingdom. The context of all of the Sermon on the Mount is very much an outer display that comes from an inner certainty that there is always more. You don't have to clutch tightly to what is rightfully yours. Even though all the organized violent Jews and all the organized violent Gentiles around you are saying something different, this is how we're supposed to act, says Jesus. Following Jesus is deeply personal, but it's never private. In fact, there is actually philosophically no such thing as a private act. As soon as you act, it's public. There is no such thing as private versus public. There is only intentions and acts. And as soon as you act, your work is out there and it will be interacted with by other people. And it will develop and help to set patterns of forms of life. And this is what the earliest followers of Jesus are doing. They're setting patterns and habits and forms of life according to the logic of heaven, of the reign of God that is unopposed. And they're opposing to that the reigns of men, the temporary rule of men. And this is the thing that Jesus is asking his people to unwean themselves from the bad habits that they're learning from the principalities and powers that they were born into, to die to those things and to be born into his principality, to adopt his habits and forms of life. Come take a walk with me and learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace. 
and that Jesus was not primarily seen as a private inner teacher of individualistic mysticism can be shown by the way that the earliest Christians, in fact, the earliest thing that any Christian ever wrote about Jesus, portrays him as an overtly political, public, and powerful figure who uses his power in a way that is responsible for the others around him. And then this passage explicitly expects that his followers will do and act likewise. It's a central pillar in the renewing of the Christian political imagination, and we're going to look at it in the following episode. Well, I am very glad to be joined once again by my good friends, Chris Marchand and Sean McCoy. Chris and Sean, always come and join us for a debrief session after every one of these episodes. Uh, But before I get to them, I want to signal to everyone that we are coming up to the end of the Followers of the Way series, season one. We're going to have 10 episodes in this. And we are thinking that perhaps for a a good way to mark the end of the season would be a good question and answers, further discussion type type episode. So please do keep sending in your emails and questions. I am gathering a few of them, but if you haven't sent one in before, info at tenttheology.com is probably the best way to do it. I'm not hard to find online, but info at tenttheology.com is the best way to do it. And if you want Chris or Sean or myself to to expand on anything we might have said or things that we've uh, mentioned in these previous episodes, then this would be a great time to bring that up. And so we're going to continue that. But in lieu of other audience questions, I'm just going to ask Chris and Sean, who I have right here, what did you think about today's episode? Black Lives Matter, itching ears, white evangelicals picking and choosing what they want to hear and what they don't want to hear. What are your thoughts about all this stuff? Chris, you're nodding at me. What do you think? Boy, it's a struggle. Uh, People are still debating whether or not Christians should stand behind Black Lives Matter. And and, and you're right. Uh, You know, it's a debate whether or not can Christians get behind an organization, what they stand for. And you brought up the communist thing and people are still talking about that. I, I think here's one of my responses, which is I have been surprised at other Christians immediately uh, denigrating, mocking other Christians for being "quote unquote" woke, and um, you know they, they say th- things like, "Oh, so you're one of those woke Christians, aren't you?" Okay, you know, and I, you know, I bet you want me to feel guilty for being white, don't you? You want me to feel guilty for that, right? right. And I, I have, w- w- I'm surprised. I'm still shocked. Maybe I shouldn't be at, at the cynicism of that kind of statement. Uh, the, the cynicism of that kind of approach. Because for me, it's literally about looking to our brothers and sisters who are in pain and who have suffered and to look at them with compassion, um, to give them a place in the conversation. Just just listen to them for a minute, for for many, many minutes. And it's actually grieved me. It's it's really saddened me to to think that all of a sudden they're talking about how all of a sudden I think I'm woke and I, and I, 
I don't really use that term very much myself because it implies that I've arrived at some great uh, place of illumination. And I don't see myself that way. I'm simply trying to love my neighbor as myself. And I think that's why somebody should say Black Lives Matter. And and so, yeah, I've been saddened by that kind of response of of a mocking of wokeness, which is not something that I claim anyway. (laughs) I mean, you know, here's the three of us. I, uh, you know, we're three white guys. And we're certainly not here white splaining Black Lives Matter to anybody. And, you know, we're we're three white guys just trying to work our way through this world honestly. We're not trying I'm not trying to control it or dominate it. I'm a trying to figure out what's going on here. And um yeah, I do I, I I know that we have a microphone and we have a we've got a platform. Um but I I find there's some value in talking to just you guys like in a way that a kind of a statistically average American, <laughs> as it were, right? A white male is somebody who I find quite useful to talk to, not because I think white males have all the answers. It's because we are trying to work out our how to be honest in this world that we live in now, which which we none of us do want to be in charge of things. We don't think that being a white male is actually... I think, I am I right in thinking you all agree with things like privilege? You agree that white privilege is a thing. And now how do, what, what do we do with it? Sean, what do you think about that? So I, I'm trying to remember if I, if I mentioned it. So I was just on a friend of mine's podcast called, can I say this at church? Okay. Um, Seth Price. And I went on there specifically to talk about uh, just the journey that I had around understanding my own white privilege. Okay. So, so whether or not I agree with you, I would say yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've never actually talked about this, but. So the, the hard, the hard part's going to be around anytime that you go to somebody like and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lump Chris into this and you correct me if I'm wrong, but any, or even you, Stephen, as soon as somebody says to you, well, Stephen, you're privileged. Yeah. Uh, most people that I know, pretty much everybody is going to respond initially and be adversarial because the, the inclination, uh, the, I'm sorry, the implication or that you're implying that you've never suffered. That's the first thing that right. comes up for right. most people is that you're somehow dismissing the suffering that you think that I, you think I'm privileged and we know the privileged people. They're, they're, a couple of economic steps ahead of us. They right. never have any problems. Their their life is great. Yeah. They're privileged because they were born into this amazing whatever, or it worked out, or the story that we, the Facebook story we, we believe about them is that it's all Shangri-La and the rest of this stuff. And let me tell you about my, and my, my knee jerk would be to tell you, well, let me tell you about all my privilege. And I would be more than happy to tell you about the, the suffering, which, which this is not the time for it, but I mean, I would, I would, you're not going to argue that I'm not, that I'm lying about it. Like, I mean, I can tell you some stuff. But why? So I think the privilege problem, doesn't mean lack of pain. No, it doesn't. But yeah. that's the but that's the first that's the knee jerk. That's the exactly. impression. Exactly. Because yeah. because going back to what we struggle with here is that well, if you've made it, if you've been successful, then you don't then you don't have any problems and you don't have any issues and everything's everything's fine. That's what we're trying to get to. There's this literal promised land here, but it's commercially based and you know socioeconomic. It's not spiritual. It's this you know if you achieve enough, you can you know you can spend $42 million on a clock for your backyard because you have so much money that you're, that you're this amazing person and you fly all over and everybody wants to know your name and that, then that's going to make everything better. And yet the irony is we all know that that's a load of, load of bull too. So it's this odd dynamic of, of all these things. And so, so in terms of that, I think that part of the issue is we, we don't, we don't, we don't include ourselves in that. We don't understand where we are with that. And I mean, I think something as simple, and it reminds me of Michael Che, he's a, a, a comedian here, he's on Saturday Night Live, and I watch one of his stand-up bits. And I think comedians really are kind of a nice place to go to get a little bit of uh, 
uh, balance and a little bit of perspective. For some reason, like I think of Bill Burr, I think of Dave Chappelle, I think of him. And he was saying in his, in his one special I just watched recently, the joke or kind of the bit was, hey, y'all, we're just, and he's, he's African-American. He was like, he's like, we're just saying black lives matter. Mm-hmm. He's like, we're just, we're not saying, we're just saying it matters. Like, can we just, can we just get you to say that it matters? Like yeah. just, and so slow it down, slow down what they're saying. Yeah. We're just saying that they matter. Like, is that, can we get, can we go to that step in the, in the, in the, in the process and just, can we all agree right. on this? Yeah. And then I think the real, again, back to this issue around, you're now going to force me to look at myself and look at my own privilege and look at my own things. And if I have to reconcile that, most of us aren't that good at that. Yeah. So then I think that's where the defense mechanism comes in and it becomes this, 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 this thing where we start to, we start to combat this idea or that we are, and then we, the, the, the dismissive or flippant response is all lives matter. And, and it becomes this thing where it's like, well, and then, you know, so it almost gets like, so it's like the nice way of saying that I don't want to deal with it. Well, of course, yeah. of course, black lives matter. I'm, I'm not going to say that specifically, but if, you know, if you're, if I don't know if if your dad came up to you if you have more than if there's multiple siblings in your house and you say dad do you love me, and and your dad would say well, I love all my children, yeah but do you love me well I bet I love all my children no do you love me like do you, me Sean do you love me, yeah I look that that just doesn't that's not con- there's a there's a lack of connection there a lack of authentic true connection and until we really because then it makes us I mean love and I've come to describe what I think is part of this issue is you have to accept, bring in, and understand, and lament with people's problems. I think that's one of the greatest aspects of love. And so if I, if I have to lament on these things that they've gone through, it, it, and if it's easier to put them over there, whether mm. we like it or not, whether it's subconscious or not, maybe part of that cognitive dissonance, it's like, okay, and then if we, you know, then it keeps us from having to deal with it. I mean, it just, well, we're just putting yeah, it and off. It's, and, I, and it's my yeah. argument. It's that defensive. That's what I was uh, sort of noticing all the time is the, is there'll always be there there's always something there'll always be a re- reaction and it happens so quickly you know as soon as anything comes that ruffles that kind the world was north america and the europe was made for white men it was made by white men it was basically made for um, for us right and as soon as anything shows up that ruffles that the defensiveness just kicks in so quickly so quickly as you know and this is why i point out you know earlier on in the, in the episodes like the only black voices that get amplified are the very tiny minority that are saying the kinds of things that white evangelicals already want to hear or you know they will find as soon as you find the word marxist on some black lives matter you know literature in some corner of the internet then immediately all black lives matter uh movements are Marxist, you know, and it just happens so quickly that rather than looking at the details, I want to look at the phenomenon of, huh, isn't that interesting? How defensive and how quick it is. That to me is this power and principle. This is the principality rearing itself up that does not want to be put back in a new place. Like uh, the principality of, of the place of power that whites have had and evangelicals and white evangelicals have we do not like being challenged and we will do whatever it takes to ignore that. If it means saying all lives matter or if it means saying, what about abortion or what, you know, the whataboutism is an, is a classic attempt for if the principality to avoid being challenged and uh, all these kind of, all, all of those issues. And then you have to end up having these long conversations. And I'm like, I don't want to have a long detailed conversation about Marxism 
I want to talk about why do you care all of a sudden about Marxism? <laughs> you don't care. You didn't care about uh, ideological purity before. Now, all of a sudden, you do? Huh, that's interesting to me. So, so real, real quick, I want to say, and then I want to give my, my friend Chris some, some time, but some maybe an exercise to help people understand the nature of it, regardless of what race or ethnicity or whatever. It's one of the areas, one of the exercises that I went through uh, to help me kind of understand where, where all this plays in. And that's whether or not you're right or left-handed. Okay. And so if you ask anybody what it's, so right or left-handed, is it, is it, is it, so 90% or so of the population is right-handed, the rest are left. And I use this example from the movie Saving Private Ryan, because I grew up, because I was a huge, uh, you know, war movie fan forever and ever. Uh, the sniper in that movie, who is like one of the kind of the heroes, if you go back and watch the movie, he looks, if you ask, I've asked people this, like, you remember, oh yeah, they get all excited. Oh yeah, he's great. He's shoot. I was like, do you remember his shooting style? What was unique about it? And they're like, oh, I don't, I don't know, but it was really odd. If you look, it's a bolt action rifle. So if you're mass producing bolt action rifles for World War II and 90% of the people that you go and you, you are going to use it are right-handed, you make the bolt action on the right side so that a right-handed person will use it comfortably and efficiently because it's easier to, to access on your right-hand side because that's where it's shooting from. But if you're left-handed, you have to reach mm. over and undo it. You go back and watch any of the highlights. He's left-handed shooting a right-handed mm. rifle. Right. So, so from that, if you extrapolate that idea out, it's like scissors or it's like other things. If it's try doing, if you're right-handed, try doing something that is built for a right-handed person with your left hand. And I mean, starting a car, uh, the rest of this stuff where the, where the, where the ignition is, all the rest of these things. And I know that y'all over there on the other side of the pond, y'all don't, you don't drive on the correct <laughs> side, but just bear with me. And I'll example. use my imagination. Yes. Use your imagination. But to that same point, like if, if, if the whole world it's, and that's a mm. preference, but then it becomes part of the norm and it becomes something that you just, you don't even realize it's there, that it's a part of your everyday. I mean, a desk that's set up for a right-handed person. If you're a left-handed person, I mean, you can't even write. I mean, even the way you write, the way you do these kinds of things. And, so it, and it doesn't mean that left-handed people are bad. It doesn't mean that right-handed people are, are great. It's just the, mm-hmm. the natural preference is that way. And if you extrapolate that out towards sexuality, language, mm-hmm. gender, faith, uh, economic status, all the rest of this stuff, you start to realize that I would, that's where I, that was where I started with my breakdown was mm-hmm. I realized that I, I fit the bill and all the things that is kind of the average yeah. and the norm. And if you stop there for a moment and realize that that's a privilege, I didn't earn that. I did right. nothing, did nothing to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, what were you, you were nodding there. What were you going to say? Oh, I'm left-handed. So, ah, uh, wow, very good. <laughs> well, you know, and, and it's strange, you know, there, there might be some correlation here, which is this, that, Many people ha- are wanting to say, well, racism is over. It's done with. Why? We, we said we were sorry all those years ago, and it's over with now. Oh, brother. And uh, why can't you just get over it? And so it's, it's really interesting. I, I grew up with a grandpa who, when I would go over to my grandpa's and my grandma's house, I would sneak and get some popsicles from, from my grandma's freezer. And if my grandpa caught me, I'm a left-handed guy, he, he would stop me and say, you know, that's a left-handed, I'm sorry, he would, you know, that's a right-handed popsicle, right? And he would just kind of stare at me in the awkwardness of the moment. But he did that all throughout my childhood about pencils, about cups, about popsicles. And um, there's, there's, a, there's a lingering sense that left-handed people are evil. And people will go, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's, it's still strangely kind of there. And I think I think I don't mean to get off too much on left handedness, but I think I do understand a little bit of what you're talking about, Sean, in the sense of there's these pervading things that exist. And when so when we acknowledge that we are privileged, 
<clears throat> we're, we're acknowledging, like you said, the, in a way, the world has been entirely built for us and we right. don't even understand it. It's the water that we're drinking. Yeah. 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 And so all I'm trying to do is just recognize that. I don't, I think I'm, I don't think I'm privileged because my life is easy. I think I'm privileged because of all the difficulties I've had, none of them have ever been because I'm a white man. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't see, that doesn't mean I don't have difficulties, but, uh, and, and so I'm actually, you know, and I, and what I want to point out to people is like, there's gospel in hearing when your principality is put back in its place. Like when the, when the, the, the faceless power you were born into, the institutions or forms of habits of life that you're born into, when when somebody comes along like Jesus and says, hey, you know what? Some of those things have, have unwritten laws that you have been following for a long time and you've been trapped in them. There's gospel in being told that they're not good or that they're not God. And I'm, and I'm released from it, you know? And so I, I don't hear these things as hard sayings. I don't hear... When I when I hear Black Lives Matter protests, I don't hear it as a hard saying that I somehow have to get over. I hear it as gospel. I hear it as liberation. I'm like, wow, there's it is good for me to be put in my place. There are forms of life and habits and powers and laws that I have been blindly following, that I have been assuming are good and they're not good. They're not leading to flourishing of all human beings. They're not leading to the kinds of things Jesus said and did. And so I'm glad to be, have those highlighted to me and dismantled, you know? And so there's a lot of this stuff that like that evangelicals, especially, and I keep talking about evangelicals and charismatics because basically that's my tribe when it really comes down to it. And they hear these things as if it's an attack on them. Whereas I hear it as if it's a, a call to freedom, to be free mm-hmm. from these things that are shackling us, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Chris. One thing I want to bring up, well, one thing really quickly. I, I'm so glad that you brought up Ayn Rand. Right. The thing that went about Ayn Rand that was so amazing when you brought that up was like, oh, my goodness, she is just so utterly evil. Yeah, she really is. She's <laughs> yeah, She really, truly is. And, I, and so even to bring up communism, because communism has done so much evil in, in yeah. world history. It's undeniable. Of but then to like – you know, to compare yeah. it to Ayn Rand, I just, I just thought that was, yeah, of course, well, I, you know. The, I'm just saying, like, isn't that interesting? People who really care about ideological purity when it comes to communists and Marxists don't care at all about ideological purity when it comes to libertarian movements and Ayn Rand yeah. and KKK members supporting, you know, all of a sudden that stuff doesn't matter. And they, they're able to, to discern and they're able to don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and uh, swallow the meat and spit out the bones, you know, all that language, all of a sudden, all these evangelicals find themselves able to apply a discerning view. Whereas they don't even want to try when it comes to the other sides that are making them feel uncomfortable, you know? And that's the thing that I just, I welcome, I welcome having a scalpel taken to my, to my (laughs) unformed and and blind habits. I want that to be shown. Yeah. So I think it's thing that's really it's good and it's critical, but I think part of the part of the difficulty is that these things as you go through this, like from my uh, speaking of my own uh, journey, that it's at the same time it's it's extremely it's it's discomforting, it's uncomfortable, and it's it can be very painful. It can be very you talk about lamenting. I mean, I just put on David's you know CD and just let it go, or or Heath CD and just kind of like continuing to hear that. So I think maybe part of the problem is just like, that's why I started with the left hand, right hand thing. If you can start with that, 
and just break and go through that. Something that's speaking of benign right. from our last episode, it's a little bit benign, even though Chris alluded to it and there are some things left over where left-handed people were. I mean, if you go back and look, something as ridiculous as that, but it starts to, if you can, if you allow it to paint the picture, I also would, as you go down that road and start to realize there are some things that are out there, it's, it is going to be freeing. I a hundred percent agree with you, but it will come with, with the cost and it will come with a, rec- a reconciliation aspect that you yeah. have to go through, which is why I think one of the biggest issues around black lives matter and stuff like that is that we never have, Chris, you mentioned it. And I asked this of everybody when we get in this discussion, I'm like, when was the day in the United States? When was the day? What was the act that, that, that changed all of it? That changed, when did racism go away? What was it? What mm-hmm. was the moment? The 1964 civil rights act or the 1968 civil rights act. That was the moment everybody went, Oh, we're good. We're because I grew up thinking we were all all agreed, like all that stuff, all the, the genocide and the racism and all this stuff, those pictures from way back, like, no, we don't want to own slaves. That's not okay. We're all we're all in this together and we're all gonna go forward to a different I thought that. And and the, and the other problem is it's there's a system aspect to, to it as well. That the other problem, and I do believe this, that when because you can be left-handed and go into a right-handed world and still be wrapped up in that, in that system, whether, whether regardless, that's why, well, how can that cop be racist or how can that situation be racist if the cop was black and the person was black? It's like, well, the problem isn't, the problem is the system. And it makes me think of Deming, uh, Dr. Deming's whole red bead theory. If you've ever seen that explanation, it's a, it's a quality measurement for manufacturing, but it talks about if the system to basically measure something or the system to build something is off, no matter what workers you put on it, 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 it fails because the system sucks. And so that's kind of the, I mean, a classic example here, you know how there's always this, uh, it, it always happens when um, in newspapers and things, you know, a, a, a prominent black person will die. And then in the, in the obituary, they'll run a picture of that person, but it will be of a different black person. Do you know about this phenomenon? And it, okay. So it happens a lot. And, and, um, and, here in the UK, we've got the, the Guardian newspaper. And the Guardian is the, is the real kind of left wing. It's woke, Chris. You'd love it. You know, it's social justice where it's, it's the real left wing progressive newspaper in the country, right? And it's well known for this. And, and there was a writer named Owen Jones, who's a really like left wing, progressive, radical kind of writer, journalist. And he was he, a, a prominent black man in this country had died. And Owen Jones, who's a white man, uh, wrote a, a, an article in praise of this man, right? And the newspaper ran a picture of the, of the wrong man, the wrong black man, because all black men look the same kind of thing. It was a racist moment, right? Now, Owen Jones is not personally filled with hatred towards black people. The Guardian newspaper is not personally filled with hatred towards black people. I get, I'm sure that the, the, the poor 21 year old, you know, summer job temp who was in charge of finding pictures off the internet in order to, to put them in the newspaper. I'm sure that person wasn't filled with personal rage against black people. But what happened was the system made it really easy for this to happen. And to me, that's an example of systematic racism. It's that like that every single human being in that system can personally like black people and they can still produce a public document which doesn't respect the the person that they're trying to honor because the because the system makes it too easy to just get these pictures mixed up and there was nobody there to stop it or to change it right to me that's like a tiny example 
of, of systematic racism, which bypasses, there's nothing to do with here with personal animus. We're not talking about your, what you individually feel. We're saying the system failed. And that's what we're talking about with systematic racism, right? There's a, there's a real quick, I want to say this because I feel really compelled. There's a documentary about a guy named Khalif Browder, K-A-L-I-E-F, B-R-O-W-D-E-R, Browder, as a young man in New York City. And what he went through, if you just if you Google his name and go watch the documentary on Netflix, I don't want to preface it too much, but it is, it is extremely, um, it shows the yeah. systemic issues in the judicial system in America. It's, it is the, probably the most sobering documentary I've, I've ever watched on dang near any subject. Well, I would just say, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and imagine that most of our listeners are probably white evangelical or charismatics. Not all, but most statistically. And uh, I would encourage our listeners to go and expose yourself, educate yourself, watch the documentary, read a couple of books, go and read some, some articles about this stuff it's not going to kill you just let it happen to you and see what happens just absorb some black lives matter material watch some documentaries listen to some voices that aren't telling you exactly what your itching ears already want to hear and see what happens and i guarantee you it's not going to hurt it's not going to kill you it might hurt you but it's not going to kill you (laughs) uh friends i'm going to say good night and goodbye and i will see you next week for episode 10 of Followers of the Way for 10th Theology Podcast. But until then, farewell. God bless. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10ththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.